0: Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Today we speak with Carrie Oyen, Assistant Professor of School Psychology here at USD about National Suicide Awareness Week, September 8th through the 14th. Carrie, how's it going this morning?
1: I'm oh, doing pretty well. Kind of uh, wishing it wasn't so dreary outside, uh, but that's okay. We're down here in Slagle and looking forward to a good conversation.
0: Now, can you tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Yeah. So I am an assistant professor of school psychology here at the University of South Dakota. And my background really has come from having a love for education, and having a love for psychology. So uh, growing up, I always say uh, that school psychology is kind of a mix between my parents' jobs. My mom was a kindergarten teacher, and my dad was a lawyer. And I always think that somehow school psychology was perhaps somewhere in the middle there. Uh, But basically what happened is that I, I got my undergraduate degree in psychology, but I had a real heart for students that were struggling with learning, struggling with behavior, and knew I wanted to do more. Uh, ended up doing a short stint as like an after-school care provider. Uh, learned a lot about uh, students struggling, particularly students who had parents that were incarcerated. And then I applied to graduate school. I actually got my uh, graduate degree here from the University of South Dakota. And I had an ed specialist in school psychology. Ended up practicing in a local school district, the Lennox School District, for 10 years. Uh, I said uh, about seven years in, I started getting a little itch, like maybe I want to do not only practice, but I also want to do research and I want to, you know, change the world. And so uh, then I started to work towards my Ph.D. in school psychology, ended up finishing that in 2016. And then in the fall of 2017 is is really when I started here at the university.
0: Now, uh, you. you- You kind of talked about your career path a little bit. You know, what led you then? Did you get your PhD from USD or?
1: I did get my PhD from USD. And it was uh, such a learning experience for me because it really moved from having that practical application of research-based interventions in schools, really thinking about mental health in schools, but not only thinking about that application, but now thinking about how can we do research on that? How can we advance policy? And how can we advance our knowledge base of understanding about things like reading problems and behavior problems. And so it's been fun for me uh, because now we get to take what I learned from my practical experiences and really try to help the research world understand what's happening in schools.
0: Now, you are not that far removed from being a student yourself. You know, what do you think interests students and prospective students in this career field or, or this, you know, research area?
1: Yeah. So Many times when we have students that come into our program, a lot of students actually didn't know that there was a career of school psychology. One of the things that we're so excited about with our with our career is that we really are a growing profession. We have a hundred percent job placement rate out of our out of our program. Uh, a big reason for that is because we are in such need. We have a critical shortage of school psychologists in our nation, and so many of our students are offered jobs well before they graduate, uh, and and really really nice paying jobs. Um, the thing that is really exciting about the career is that there's kind of this idea that I really care about students, I really care about mental health and their learning, but maybe I'm not necessarily looking to be a teacher. Um, Maybe I'm not necessarily looking to teach 30 students at a time. Maybe I really want to help one student and being thinking about how can I apply these mental and behavioral health interventions in a school setting. And so many times we have people that come into our program that maybe had thought about education, but then they thought that wasn't quite for them, but they really still wanted to work with children. And so as a school psychologist, you get to do a lot of assessment, diagnostics and interventions for kids.
0: Well, and that was a, a follow-up question I wanted to ask was, you know, what does a school psychologist do on a day-to-day basis? Is there a normal day for a school psychologist?
1: So one of the things that I loved about being a school psychologist is that there was a lot of variability. And so as a school psychologist, you spend some time doing assessment. So it's assessment for things like learning disabilities, for autism, for behavioral-based disabilities, things like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, some of those kinds of things. But you also uh, work really hard with kids that perhaps have diagnoses of different things, and you might do intervention. So when I was a school psychologist, I also would run like social skills groups and really trying to lower barriers for student learning. I did a lot of consulting with teachers, with parents, with administrators about things like, you know, what's happening with discipline, uh, what's happening with student learning, you know, how can we make sure that we have better uh, phonemic awareness in our school? What are some interventions we can try? So what I like is you can wear a lot of hats and you also will never be bored.
0: (laughs) You know, obviously an important concern, I think, for school psychologists, anyone who works in a school setting, um, is the mental health of students. And, you know, unfortunately, I think suicide and you know, suicide awareness is something that is is growing in nature. Um, you know, and September 8th through the 14th is actually the National Suicide Prevention Week. And that's part of the reason why we wanted to bring you on was just talk about suicide prevention. Um, you know, first, can you initially tell us, you know, is, is there a certain demographic that is more susceptible um, to suicide than any? Does it go across age groups does it go across, across you know class and and ethnic boundaries i mean uh, what are what does the you know science and demographics tell us about suicide
1: Uh, Well, first of all, I think that it's so important that you bring this up. So thank you so much for having me on to talk about this. One of the things that we know about, particularly youth suicide, uh, in South Dakota, we're actually, we compete between uh, number one and number two in rates of youth suicide in our nation. I've had a lot of researchers call me and say, you know, what is happening in South Dakota that you have such a high rate of youth suicide? Uh, In particular, when it comes to things uh, like suicide, that demographic of students between that age of 18 to 21 is a really uh, very vulnerable time for students that might be struggling with some of those suicidal ideation, things like that. Uh, The thing that we know about suicide is that it does go across class. It grows across uh, certainly different races and ethnicities. Uh, What we do know is that the cause of suicide is is often not just one thing. Uh, But what we do know is that oftentimes it is related to a treatable mental illness, And typically, it's the combination of a treatable mental illness and some sort of stress trigger. And and I think more most importantly, what we can think about here as mental health providers is how do we increase awareness of some of the warning signs? And then when we see people that are struggling with some of these things, what can we do? So uh, so again, I think part of the reason we have Suicide Awareness Week is that we want to know that, especially in South Dakota, this is something that people are really are very commonly struggling with. And I think it's so important to equip people to know what to do.
0: Well, and that was a question I wanted to follow up on as well was, you know, what are some of the warning signs? I think that you know, if you're on social media, you, you might see, you know, a, a meme that gets shared amongst friends. Right. With like a suicide hotline. Right. Or, you know, a message that you know, I, th- I think is laudable to, you know, go check on your friends, stuff like that. But oftentimes I think you don't realize that someone is struggling. So what might be some signs that would indicate that someone um, is thinking about suicide and might need help?
1: Yeah, so some of the more common signs are things like direct suicidal threats. So that would be saying things like, I want to die, um, or indirect, I wish I could go to sleep and not wake up, some of those kinds of things. Uh, certainly, some of the more common things people think about are suicide notes, um, maybe plans, uh, or even online postings saying, you know, things like, I, I don't want to continue on, um, things like that, making final arrangements. So if you have someone that's in your life that's kind of making those final arrangements, thinking about their funeral, things like that. Preoccupation with death can also be a sign. Uh, Giving away some of your prized possessions, Uh, so things that are really, really important to you. All of a sudden, you've given them to all of your friends. That can be a really uh, important warning sign to attend to. Uh, Again, talking about death. Sometimes there's a sudden, unexplained uh, unhappiness. Uh, or excuse me, a sudden unexplained happiness where it's almost like you are um, over. All of a sudden, I'm really, really happy because now I'm going to, um, you know, I'm considering death by suicide. Uh, The other thing is increased risk-taking and heavy drug and alcohol use. Again, one of the things that I want to make sure that people understand is that when you think about a treatable mental illness, oftentimes they are things like anxiety and depression, and some of those things can kind of stem from those those mental illnesses. Uh, but typically, when it comes to uh, warning signs with suicide, it, it is a stressor that's associated with it. So that's really why we say it's like see something, say something, uh, making sure that you're empowering people around you uh, to to really access help. Sometimes people that are really struggling have a hard time asking for help. So part of our job as bystanders is to be be kind of an upstander, you know, really trying to equip people with resources or, or really uh, maybe saying this is the first step you need to take.
0: Well, and, and that was, you know, the next question I wanted to ask is what can you do if you have a friend or a loved one um, who you are worried about?
1: Yeah. So the thing that's really uh, important about suicide, again, I was a mental health provider in a school system for many years. And sometimes when we start to hear suicidal ideation, it can make us feel a little uncomfortable. And I think in particular, you know, we're from the Midwest. It's kind of a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality. We don't need to be worried about those things that are, you know, mental illness, things like that. We need to, you know, just take care of it ourselves. I think the best thing that we can do for someone that's really struggling with mental illness, struggling with suicidal ideation is is taking the time to listen. Uh, Know that talking with someone about suicide does not increase the chance for them to die by suicide. Uh, actually talking with someone about their suicidal thoughts can be a mechanism for getting help. Um, So you're not going to be like giving someone an idea. Like all of a sudden, now I have an idea. I'm going to die by suicide just because you're talking to me about it. And in fact, what they find is the opposite is true. If you start talking to somebody about it, all of a sudden, now I feel like someone's there to listen to me and help me. Um, Some of the other things is really remaining calm, non-judgmental, listening, uh, asking directly about it actually saying the words, are you thinking about suicide? That's a very powerful statement. And in fact, when we train our our students about threat assessments, we say you need to directly ask, are you thinking about suicide? Don't be afraid to say the word. Uh, Focus on concern for their Uh, well-being. Avoid being kind of accusatory. That kind of language doesn't tend to be very helpful or saying dismissive, like, oh, you don't really think that. Oh, there's no way you can be really thinking about that. Um, Reassuring people that there's help and there's hope. Um, Thinking about um, providing that constant supervision. So if somebody is really indicating that they have a lot of suicidal ideation, we don't want to leave that person alone. Uh, We want to make sure that they're under constant supervision. Um, Being thinking about things like mechanisms of self-harm. So this is why when I would work with parents that had children that were struggling with mental health and perhaps had some suicidal ideation, we talked a lot about access to weapons, um, thinking about the things that you have in your home. So it is things like making sure you don't have guns and some of those means by which um, someone could die by suicide. And then also getting help, um, making sure you're not agreeing to keep a secret. Uh, Know that there's lots of mechanisms. Uh, One of the most common mechanisms, which I have been so pleased about, is that National Suicide Hotline. Um, That's actually as easy as a text. So you can really text START to 741741, and it automatically hooks you up with a mental health uh, provider to help you in your time of need. There's also a a crisis hotline, 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K.
0: Now these are some you know resources that are available I think to the community at large. Um, you know obviously unfortunately suicide is a is a topic that we have to worry about here on college campuses in particular. You know you talked about the idea of a stressor event and you know I think about you know my days as an undergraduate student or, or a prospective one. That was very stressful. I mean there was a lot of anxiety with the decision to go to college or leaving home for the first time in a lot of ways. Um, what resources are available on campus and I don't know if you can just talk about the background maybe of you know how suicide affects college-age populations?
1: Yeah, so again, thinking about particularly, particularly at the University of South Dakota, one of the things that I've been so pleased about is, especially in the in the realm of student services, uh, these resources that we have available to students that are enrolled. Uh, one of the, the great resources is the Cook House. So the Cook House is the Counseling Center. And what I love about the things that they do there is that they'll help you with a wide variety of things. If you're struggling with some anxiety, even things like test anxiety, I'm really having a hard time navigating some of my courses. I could really use some help navigating study skills. Uh, I also could use some help struggling with some depressive thoughts. You know, for some people, this is the first time away from home. This might be the biggest community you've lived in. Um, And I think what can happen is that People can look on things like social media and they see other people taking photos and they're thinking, I am the only one having a hard time with this transition to college. Everyone else seems to have it together, but I'm having this really hard time. And more than anything, what I really want students to hear is that, you know, one in five people struggle with mental illness it is very common to be struggling with anxiety and depression um, really when it comes to those transitional times. And so you are definitely not alone uh, at USD. Certainly you can go to the cookhouse. The other thing we have is as a new, it's called, it's a safe app. It's the USD safe app. And that actually can help you to get in contact. If you're really feeling suicidal in the moment, uh, you need to have some help right away. Certainly if that is not accessible to you, call nine one one. Um, and and people are there to help navigate some of those things you can go to the emergency room here at Vermilion, uh, and that's another resource that you could have available to you uh, to be able to stay safe in those times of need. Um, The other place that I think um, people can utilize are some of those academic supports. And so if you are having some test anxiety, you are having a hard time navigating the academic world, you know, we have a wide variety of services at our Student Services Center. We have a writing center. Um, We do even have places that are in the library. The librarians will help, you know, with some of those study table kind of things. And so, uh, again, I think part of it is is asking for help. But then the second part of it is knowing that there are so many people here that are vested in wanting to wanting you to be successful.
0: You know, you mentioned the cookhouse, you know, obviously as being able to provide resources for people who are looking help. Do students also you know get the opportunity to counsel, um, you know, members of the public or, or students that need help? I mean, is there an experiential learning component with that as well?
1: So the Cookhouse is its really a quite a, a neat partnership that we have at the university. Uh, the Cookhouse is staffed by highly qualified mental and behavioral health providers, so there are people on staff um, doing that. But we also have some of our doctoral students that are in the clinical mental health program, and they get to use some of their practicum hours to come over to the Cookhouse and provide services. Um, what we really find is that that helps uh, not only to equip uh, students uh, to be able to be successful at the college level, but it also equips our uh Ph.D. level doctoral counseling students to be able to really get real life experiences to help students be more successful. So we really feel like it's a great partnership. The other place that we do have on campus is the Counseling and School Psychological Services Center, and that's right in DelZell School of Education. And that is actually designed. A lot of uh, people that are doing their hours there are are doing kind of a clinical practicum, um, where they are seeing s- students for extra credit uh, in their courses. And so uh, oftentimes students are being seen, you know, for things like trying to increase your study skills or trying to set some goals or maybe even trying to address some of those uh, mental health things that you have going on. So we do have a lot of different people providing supports, uh, but I think part of it is just understanding how to get there.
0: You know, before we move on, um, you know, when... One thing that you brought up before we you know, got on the interview was just some of the myths associated with suicide. I don't know if you can talk about you know, some of the common myths that people may have um, or, or preconceived notions that people may have about suicide and how that affects you know, prevention and treatment.
1: Yeah. So one of the biggest myths, and we, we talked a little bit about this before, but one of the biggest myths is talking about suicide will make someone choose death by suicide who's never thought about it before. And the reason we want to debunk that myth is that we know that there is no evidence to support that talking about suicide plants, any ideas. Um, Also talking with your friend about how they feel and letting them know that you care about them is important. And that's really the first step in getting help. So that's why we want to know that that asking those direct questions is is important. And it can help people see like, this is how serious the problem is. So that's probably the number one myth. Uh, Number two is really people who struggle with depression or mental illness are just weak. That's a little bit about that mental health stigma. There are some stigmas associated with especially internalizing mental health problems. Uh, I always think about it like we won't, we don't get mad at somebody who has type one diabetes because they need a little insulin, right? Uh, but certainly we have a different approach. If somebody's really struggling with anxiety or depression, and 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 then they're looking for treatment options, it seems to be more like, well, what are all the other things you've tried to do? Um, it seems to just be a little bit more stigma associated with that. And so uh, certainly we want to know that depression and other mental illnesses are serious health conditions. The other thing that we need to r- keep in mind is that they're very treatable. Um, the other myth c- that can be associated with it is that the only treatment is medication. Um, certainly, we know that medication can be a powerful support for people that are struggling with mental illness. But we also know that there are so many powerful counseling uh, kind of interventions, things like cognitive behavioral therapy, Um also thinking about things like trauma-informed cognitive behavioral therapy to really um, dive into some of the, the mechanisms at play for mental illness and then getting better, right? So uh, that's really important too. And then the last thing is that people who talk about suicide won't really do it. Uh, The reason that's such an important myth for us to be thinking about is that people, particularly young people who are thinking about suicide, typically demonstrate those warning signs that I had talked about and then always take warning signs seriously. Um, Sometimes people in, in my clinical experiences when I was working in school, sometimes they would say, oh, they're just doing that for attention and we want to make sure that we're taking warning signs seriously, because oftentimes people that are struggling, they might not necessarily know the, the best way to ask for help. And so sometimes some of these things can just be um, coming out in weird ways. And we want to take those things seriously so that we can get, get students help.
0: You know, I had one more topic I wanted to bug you about today, yeah. um, but you had you had mentioned that there was a, a number that you could text um, and, and get support. I don't know if you could just give the, the callback number of that one more time for our listeners, you know, if they um, you know feel that they have someone that they need to talk to. What, what was the number again?
1: Yeah, no problem at all. So one of the easiest ways to get help is to text the word start, S-T-A-R-T, to 741741. And that's a really nice way for you to immediately get hooked up with a mental health provider. The other uh, way that you could, if you are somebody who's a little bit older like me, perhaps you'd like to make a phone call. And that number is 1-800-273-TALK, which is 8255. So again, it's 1-800-273-8255. And that's our national suicide hotline. And sometimes it can just be nice to have someone to speak with. Um, there's a lot of uh, new knowledge about uh, suicidal ideation. You know, part of it is having access to to, to things um, in social media. Perhaps I have a, a an impression, like I said before, that everybody else has it figured out, and I don't quite have it figured out. And so, more than anything, I, I hope that this is an opportunity for us to to hear that there are a lot of people struggling, and there's a lot of things that go on, especially in that transition to college, that are social pressures, academic pressures. I'm also by myself. Um, Maybe I'm not eating the best. Maybe I'm not sleeping the best. And having all of those things together really can cause some very common struggles. And so more than anything, I hope that people know that there's, there's resources to help here at USD.
0: You know another area of um, interest for you and I thought it was really interesting myself was just kind of the resources that USD provides and also just sort of the research that it does on disaster preparedness especially as it relates to like active shooters active shooter situations which is another topic that you know unfortunately is ever more present in the news um, what's your background with that what sort of research do, do you do um, and what sort of you know resources maybe does USD offer uh, school districts around South Dakota in this area?
1: Yeah, so I do have a passion particularly for school safety. I mean, if we just take a look at the news from this past week, we saw that there was another large mass shooting. Um, This one particularly was not in schools, but we know that there's been a a really, there's a a higher rate of school shootings over the years. Uh, The other thing I do want you to know, though, is that even though we have an increase in school shootings, school is still one of the safest places for you to be. What's hard is that some of those school shootings certainly make a lot of media, and then they really do instill quite a bit of fear. So one of the things that we talk a lot about here at USD, and and truly when I do a lot of training for my graduate students, we talk a lot about being prepared and, and really investing in prevention. And when we take a look at some of those investments, when we think about being prepared and being safe, oftentimes we think about those physical things. So... When I used to go into my school district 10 years ago or 15 years ago now, what I noticed is that we could walk right in. We just walked right in. You may or may not have stopped at the office, but you just went in, got whatever you needed, and then left. Uh, If you would go into many school districts now in the state of South Dakota, you would know that there's typically a double entry door. Typically, you have to beep like the secretary to be let in you kind of state your purpose for visiting you go into the office right away you get a visitor's patch and some of those kinds of safety measures what they find is that that can be a that is really a perception of safety and it's physical safety there are some measures out there in policy right now that are talking about things like um Metal, uh, metal detectors on the way in. You know, certainly we know anybody that's been to like a concert knows that they they send people through medical metal detectors, and that's really trying to make sure we're not bringing any weaponry, things like that. And um, they they do find that in schools, in particular, some of those like common sense physical safety things are, are very positive. Now, no, no metal detector, no, um, you know, b- big wall around your school can protect you from every threat. And that's why it's really important not only to invest in physical safety, but also to invest in psychological safety in schools. Um, the other thing, this is just a side note, that in the United States, no death in a school shooting has ever occurred behind a locked door. So what we know about that then is that when we think about things like lockdowns and we think about things like an active shooter drill, the most important thing we can do is lock that door. There are also um, the other thing to keep in mind with active shooter drills. I don't know if you've experienced a lot of those in the news, but those are things like actually having a pretend assailant come in with an actual it's, it's usually a gun that has kind of a pellet kind of thing in it, and it would have you practice that with kids. What we know about that is that that can be very traumatizing for both children and for teachers because... Especially for people that have a history of trauma, oftentimes it can ignite some of those fears. So what we say is that it's important to have common sense prevention. So that means we do think that it's really important to do things like lockdown drills to make sure that school that students are equipped to say things like "listen to your teacher," and to make sure your school building has that physical safety. Um, however, you know, actually shooting people with rubber bullets does not tend to do that. In fact, when you have too much of those structures in place, too many metal detectors, too many, it actually can create fear in people. Like this place must really not be very safe. And so that's why it's important to balance those things. Um, Psychological safety, I think that it doesn't get enough play uh, in mainstream media, but psychological safety has a lot to do with feeling safe in the place that you're in. So thinking about USD and thinking about things that we're trying to do is we really try to make this a place that's inclusive, that is really embracing diversity and different thoughts and, and, and opinions. Um, so really having that positive climate can do a lot to promote that psychological safety. Um, the other thing is that psychological safety can also be really empowered by people having a plan. So when I came here, first, my first year here, I kept thinking I'm not exactly sure what I should. I mean, I, I assume if there's a fire, I'll just go outside. But I'm not really sure what is it that I should do, like if there is an armed shooter or if, um, you know, even if there's a flood, I don't know. But what if you look around campus, what you're going to notice is that there's these tiny little, there's about 8 by 10 or 8 by 11, they're in each classroom. They actually say, this is what you do. And they have tiny little things. So in an emergency, you would know exactly what it is that you should do and that's a really powerful thing that we've really included. Uh, one of my favorite people, Kevin O'Kelly, he does a lot with safety at the University of South Dakota, and I think that what they're trying to do is is do prevention, but then also mitigation, you know, once that um, once that crisis occurs, and so a part of that is really equipping people to know what is it that I should do, how can I be prepared, but then again, like, I'm thinking about that school climate, you know, it's it, I, and again, I love the climate of USD, I love the Coyote kind of crazies, I love, all of that, but I think it's also about... including and respecting those who are different from us.
0: You know, it makes me think of my dad telling stories about, like, nuclear fallout um, (laughs) training that they used to do, like, when he was in grade school. And I think for my generation, who might be young parents themselves right now here in South Dakota, you know, that's it's almost like it skipped our generation. We may have had, like, tornado training, but we didn't have fallout training. We didn't have active shooter training. Um, And so I think it's sometimes difficult to maybe grasp the type of anxiety that that um, yeah, you know, type of training or or even that type of situation can engender in, in current students. You know, you see that online, you know, students kind of reacting to the training that they sometimes have. Um, what would you say? You know, you talk about kind of the balancing act between you know you want the appropriate level of preparedness and training and plans in place but you also don't want to make schools military compounds right mm-hmm. um i don't know if you have any thoughts just on like that balance like how how do we strike that especially in a place like south dakota where i think we like to think that our schools here are relatively safe right
1: yeah well again i always like to say the first thing and foremost is that school is still the safest place for children but we have had school shootings. We've had school shootings in South Dakota, and um, one of the things to note is that typically there is some sort of association with the school. So that's kind of where we start to think about some of those things like warning signs. You know, typically when it comes to things like active shooters, there there tends to be some sort of uh, maybe an underlying mental illness, and then the trigger. And and what it's important to note is that, you know, pay attention to those around us, you know, pay attention to um, students that are really having a hard time all of a sudden maybe socially withdrawing. I know that there's been certain, especially like in some of our smaller school districts, if they have like some presence on social media that indicates threat, I think it is really important that we see something and we say something and we try to get kids, you know, really help when they need it. Um, The other thing I do think is that when it comes to things like having those double door entries, having visitor policy, I know one of my colleagues tells a story about how uh, she ended up stopping. There was kind of a, it was like a purse thief that was in a school district, but she was just asking this person. This person was in the hallway. She happened to be in the hallway. She was a school psychologist and said, you know, hi, can I help you? I noticed you don't have a visitor patch on. And just in that act, that person ended up leaving. Come to find out that this person had been coming into schools during recess breaks and stealing teachers' purses. And what was so important about that is that she was trained to say, hey, I don't see that you have a visitor patch on. How can I help you? So again, it's not accusatory, but it's also keeping our hallways safe. Um, You know, our children are our most valuable uh, resource that we have in our society. That's why I do think it's important to have those physical structures in place. Do I feel better that when my kids are at school that somebody has to beep in before they come into the school building? Yes. But we also have to know that some people that beep in might still be having a hard time.
0: No, and it makes me, you know, in real time, I can tell you like, I remember the exact moment year that a lot of those policies at least got implemented where I grew up in Watertown, South Dakota. I mean, they may have had visitor policies, but it was after September 11th. That's when I think, you know, I remember being in in middle school and schools starting to take that much more seriously, you know, we'd have threat level assessments, orange and things like that, um, back in the day. And that was kind of when I first remembered, like, they'd start locking certain doors, um, you know, during certain portions of the day, kind of would funnel traffic through, you know, kind of an entrance. Um, We've probably taken enough time uh, from you here, Um, so we'll wrap up. You know, there's one question I always like to ask anybody who comes in, um, and that's just, you know, at this point in your life, obviously you've had a lot of different experiences. You've kind of worked on both the, uh, you know, practical side of of school counseling. Also now you, you teach it, you get to research it. You know, at this point in your life, what do you know for sure?
1: Oh, what do I know for sure? What I know for sure is that when we invest in children and when we invest in things like learning and mental health, we get exponential amount of outcomes. The other thing I know for sure is that people are far more resilient than you think. And so when we really invest in people, help them to access hope and and really empower them to make a difference, uh, know that we can do that. And so, uh, uh, again, more than anything from this, I, I want students to know that transitions can be tough, and especially that transition from high school into college can be, be a, a bit of a rough road, but it doesn't mean that you don't keep trying. It doesn't mean that there's not people that are really here to help you, and it doesn't mean that it won't get better. And so even in some of the darkest times, I've had experiences where we actually did have a... Um, a shooter kind of outside of our our school building and and what one of the things I kept thinking about is that I was so pleased that I had had some preparation but more importantly I knew that no matter what at the end of the day things can get better and so I just want to empower people to to know that things can get better.
0: Well, Carrie, thank you so much for speaking with us today and for obviously all the work you do here at USD, helping our students succeed and also just helping students around the st- state deal with often difficult issues. So thank yes. you very much.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. So we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we interview Dr. Samuel Hurley, curator of the South Dakota Oral History Center. Until next time, go Yotes.